AVXL episode 141 was recorded on May 27th, 2021. Let's talk about Yamaha. They got a patch for their AVRs with 8K and 4K 120 hertz problems. Amazon's buying MGM. There's no place like home. Dune's got a premiere date. JDS Labs has a new Atom Jack Plus, and there might be a replacement for Oppo in the world of high-end UHD Blu-ray players. By the way, the word of the day is resistance taper if you're into volume knobs. Don't forget, email ask at avxl.com if you got a question for us. And thank you, thank you, thank you to everyone that supports AVXL at patreon.com slash AVXL. Robert and I greatly appreciate your monthly contribution. You help make this show possible. Testing one, two, three. All right. I'm not blowing anything out. Ignorant weasels chewing on your soul. Ignorant weasels. Do you have speed? Yeah. Well, Navy Excel, your guide to the best in home video and audio gear, no matter what your budget is. I'm Patrick Norton. Hey, I am Robert Heron. Did I tell you about the Spotify car thing? No. So somehow uh, I managed to miss that they did a hardware experience. It looks like a cell phone with a volume knob. Uh, it's uh, and it plays Spotify. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> On a big car-friendly interface. That could be very useful. As always, I'm really excited about the volume knob, which is not just the volume knob, but you can like scroll through things uh, and tap with it. So you can browse, select, play, pause, discover. You can use Hey Spotify uh, to ask for a particular song or album. Uh, it's got some preset buttons built into it so you can shortcut to your favorite tunes. Do you have to link a phone to it in order to actually access those services? Or is it, I would imagine so. I right? presume you have to have data from somewhere yeah <laughs> would be my thought i don't think all of spotify is going to be downloaded to your phone oh, so no. it's funny they, they basically seeded a bunch of people you can go to carthing.spotify.com and get added to the list in case it becomes a uh a thing essentially you paid seven bucks for shipping and handling they anticipate it's going to be $79.99 at retail. And of course, they're on uh, uh, eBay for like 400 bucks. <laughs> uh, if you can find one. It looks like, you know, effectively a almost a smartphone, but with a nice knob on it. <laughs> Here, I found the fine point. CarThing requires that you maintain a paid Spotify premium subscription directly via Spotify and a smartphone with a Wi-Fi or mobile data connection. Eligible paying subscribers only. One CarThing per eligible subscriber while supplies last. Terms apply. If that is your primary listening experience is through Spotify, that is a sweet interface that you could add to pretty much any vehicle. Yeah. Especially your older it's vehicles that maybe don't have the best... Way nicer than... <laughs> ...interface. <laughs> Well, it's funny, right? Because you've got some basic integration between uh, Google Maps and Spotify. I also laugh because you cannot pause, for example, or fast forward or rewind or skip forward, I guess would be a more accurate phrase. There's no relationship between Google Maps and Audible, but you do have the ability to play uh, Audible books in your Waze maps, which makes me laugh. Like, given that both That's of those funny. are basically owned by Google, is it because Google doesn't want the filthy Amazon product near their primary maps product, or because Waze users are the kind of people that, you know, listen to more audiobooks than tunes while they drive? Um. <laughs> Probably a little bit of A and a little bit of B. I, you know, I love volume knobs, so I got very excited when I saw that. And for anybody who's like, you need lossless in your truck, uh, you don't. Uh, <laughs> I often do have lossless in my truck, but you don't. 
I'm not sure what audio quality I really need at this point. After some recent hearing tests that I'll talk about a little bit later. <laughs> I may oh be way overestimating my ability to perceive. Ah, anyway, I'll talk about uh, it in a bit. <laughs> the other thing that kind of like blew my mind was that uh, Deadline.com says Dune, the 2021 version, is hitting the Venice Film Festival in September. Dune was supposed to be the 2020 version, but it got delayed by everything. It's... Uh, uh, Denis uh, Villeneuve, uh, a name I can barely pronounce, despite the fact that I love his work. Uh, he directed Blade Runner 2049, Arrival, Sicario. He has this absolutely insane cast for this movie. Timothy Chalamet, Rebecca Ferguson, Oscar Isaac, Josh Brolin, Zendaya, uh, Sharon Duncan Brewster, Jason Momoa, and Javier Bardem. Just an extraordinary group of acting talent. The trailer is incredible if you haven't seen it. It's been out for a year. And I just have this one note on the script here, and it says, please let it not suck. Because <laughs> it's such an amazing, uh, such an extraordinary novel. Uh, it is a novel that is difficult to translate to film, even for brilliant directors. I'll let uh, anybody who's seen earlier versions of Doom work that out for themselves. <laughs> I was not a fan, terribly, of the original film anyway. Yeah. It was just something I tried to watch a few times, and I'm not sure if I ever made it through the whole thing. Maybe I'll have to revisit that. It's been many, many years since I first watched the original Dune film David version, Lynch's but... Dune... I'm a huge David Lynch fan, and I was a huge David Lynch fan at the time when Dune came out in 1984. Um, I will also say that I am a huge fan of a great deal of David Lynch's work, but Dune, <laughs> I, you know, I still to this day think it's one of those things where the, uh, the uh, yeah, I got nothing. <laughs> I mean, I love David Lynch, but... The 1984 version of Doom is way more interesting in camp value than I think it is as a translation of the novel. I was also distracted by the release of the original Terminator that year. So <laughs> Dune didn't have as great of an impact on me as definitely the, I first, saw them both. the original Terminator. I saw them both. Oh, man. And Loki's almost out. I'm very excited about that. I'm very, very excited about that. Uh, so earlier this year, uh, we talked about the 8K slash 4K 120 issues because all the AVRs use the same chipset that turned out to be not particularly well tested. Denon slash Marantz, the San United companies, have their fix, which is going to involve a free external box that you'll run your HDMI through to get it to work properly on their AVRs. Yamaha is going a different route. They are. Yamaha has now posted an update on their website detailing how they're going to deal with some of the affected models for this 120 hertz 4K bug fix that really is related to the release of devices like the Xbox Series X and NVIDIA's 30 Series RTX cards. There was compatibility issues. People weren't able to get the full frame rate, say, or they were experiencing things like black screen issues and other problems. Well, there is a complimentary HDMI board upgrade available for some models. I'll put a link in the show notes to the article so you can check and see specifically what models will be affected by this. They are saying even with this board upgrade, and it sounds like it's going to be a physical, actual hardware upgrade that's going to be required to actually fix these. The latest versions of some of these models, though, are unaffected by this hardware bug and will only require a firmware update coming later, hopefully later this year. They're saying at this point, stay tuned for further details coming this summer. 
Oh, and they did announce a new 8K AVR that doesn't have this issue whatsoever, and I thank Mr. John Archer over at Forbes for a nice write-up about that. The funny thing for me is seeing how this will be a board upgrade, and that is going to require folks to not only get their products registered, if you haven't and you are one of these affected owners, do take care of the registration part. So they have your name on file ready to go. They'll probably mm-hmm. do a double check based upon your specific serial number to make sure you are an affected unit. All of this is going to be coming up, but at this point, we're taking a wait and see until we get the further details in the summer. I'm curious as to how many affected owners will actually take advantage of this in terms of actually having to send your unit in or take it somewhere to have an actual board swap slash upgrade. We'll see. We wait with bated breath, ladies and gentlemen. Crazy, crazy, crazy news. Just as AT&T gives up on HBO and Warner, uh, which are going to be combined with Discovery in a new venture, Amazon is buying MGM for $8.45 billion. To put that into perspective, Amazon got Whole Foods for a mere $13.7 billion. Gives Amazon control over an insane catalog of 4,000 films, 17,000 TV shows, the 007 series, The Graduate, Fargo. Um, it also means they have a big old chunky United Artists, or basically all of United Artists, so Rocky, Apocalypse Now, Raging Bull, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. What is completely insane is that does not include classic MGM movies made before 1986. For example, The Wizard of Oz and Singing in the Rain and Gone with the Wind, who belong to Border Media. I got to say, IndieWire.com is doing a great job covering this, uh, and they walk you through the fact that MGM, back in the Kokorian days, uh, sold the rights to those. I think it was Kokorian was running it back then, but it doesn't matter because Ted Turner bought all those titles to fuel Turner Classic Movies (laughs) back when Turner Classic Movies played uh, old movies. There's a... uh, Typically Amazonian uh, Amazonian quote, the real financial value behind this deal is the treasure trove of intellectual property in the deep catalog we plan to reimagine and develop together with MGM's talented team. Think uh, television show spinoffs and remakes. Quote, it's very exciting, provides so many opportunities for high quality storytelling. Think lots and lots <laughs> of sequels, uh, reboots, and television series. Titles are going to be scattered all over the services for a while. For me, this is just insane of how all of our favorite classic content is being walled off into various gardens that are not cross-compatible. Yeah. I appreciate the fact that I can do so much streaming nowadays, but there is no one source for everything. And the costs related to try to get everything, in a sense is almost as much as it may have been (laughs) under the previous way we were doing it in terms of, you know, paying your cable or satellite provider and all the movie channels. And ah, anyway, right. So one of my favorite movies of all time is this incredibly obscure movie with Bill Pullman and uh, Ben Stiller called The Zero Effect. And uh, Bill Pullman plays this Sherlock Holmes-esque investigator and Ben Stiller's its front man. Uh, not so much as Watson, but his face. And uh, Jake Kasdan, uh, son of a famous director, directed it. I love this movie. absolutely adore this movie. I don't think it ever made it to anything beyond DVD. It's uh, fascinating to me, right? It's a brilliant movie. Uh, I mean, Roger Ebert gave it three and a half stars in case you don't trust my taste in movies, which is a reasonable thing to do. It was not a particular box office success, 
So it was out on VHS and it was out on DVD and I don't think it's ever going to make it to Blu-ray or anything else. And it's not a super popular streaming title. So, right. you know, I will probably never see a particularly high quality version of this, but uh, it's one of the reasons I do my best to, for my favorite movies, if there is a Blu-ray release or if there is a UHD release, I buy it if I can. Um you know, one of our favorite uh, Blu-ray reviewers points out that, you know, you should buy these things because sometimes they are only available for a limited period of time or they're a, a kind of a special offering. Uh, because a lot of companies, I think, learned from Disney that controlling your back catalog and the availability of it is a way to continue to generate revenue far into the future. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I think it's going to be a while before Blu-ray goes away, uh, especially given how much sales shot up in this last year as we all were locked in our houses Good it's going to be interesting to see what happens right because there's existing deals so a lot of the titles are going to be all over the place part of me was like oh they're going to all end up being exclusive on amazon video and then i'm like oh wait mgm has epics which is a streaming service for mgm properties so maybe amazon will will keep epics and mgm's stuff on Epic so they can get you for your prime membership. And if you want all this stuff, you can go to pay a monthly fee for Epics. Um, you know, <laughs> as long as yeah. they don't make it hard for me to watch, uh, respect, which is, uh, the Aretha Franklin biopic that's coming out in August. Just, just don't make it hard to watch that Amazon or MGM or whoever owns what at that point. <laughs> I'm all about buying discs whenever possible, especially for movies. Cause I have yeah. purchased quote unquote purchased certain movies online through some of the streaming providers I take part of. Right. And it's, it's hard to even remember you own that kind of stuff. Sometimes it's like, unless you're in that service, you wouldn't even know you had it. Uh, and anyway, it, having the disc gives you the best quality. I don't know. It used to be kind of cool when you could just simply take that code that came with every movie, add right. it to an online streaming service, and then be able to enjoy it that way as well. But even that's become more difficult nowadays. And suddenly I'm uh, longing for the days where I have my media server with hundreds of movies on it in pristine quality, <laughs> at full quality. Even that's not as practical as it used to be. Such a pain in the ass nowadays with all these giant file sizes. <laughs> Oh, four uh, lines got or like HDR several hundred uh, terabytes, like a significant chunk of a petabyte containing his giant collection of uh, uncompressed cinema. A thing of beauty. Speaking of uh, Blu-ray players, Blu-rays and UHD Blu-rays, uh, there's a new company called Ravon, which is promising to pick up the mantle that Oppo laid down uh, when they walked away from the Blu-ray, high-end Blu-ray player business back in 2018. Audioholics has a really nice report. Uh, essentially, they're Ravon. They're going to make UHD Blu-ray players. Uh, they're going to use MediaTek's uh, MTK8581. Oppo used a custom MediaTek processor. I, I don't think using an off-the-shelf one is bad. I also think it will significantly reduce costs compared to Oppo. They're going to offer two models, very, very similar to uh, Oppo's UDB 205 and 203. So there's going to be a less expensive HDMI-only model and a more expensive model that offers uh, analog audio outputs. Launches this summer in Europe. There's no U.S. pricing yet, but Audioholics says uh, the EU pricing converts to $945 for the UBR-X100 and about $1,890 for the UBR-X200, 
which actually makes the Oppo 205 and 203 look affordable by comparison. Unless you were trying to buy them today because of scalper yeah. pricing. <laughs> there are Oppo 205s be... and 3s out there, but the pricing is just through the roof. And yeah. yeah. Well, hopefully if this becomes a popular product among audiophiles and videophiles, that these prices will hopefully scale down a little bit too and become even more appealing. The HDMI only one is going to be ideal for most people, but even going back to the 205 with Oppo's case and now with the UBRX100 or the 200, uh, having yeah. analog output, at least in the Oppo version, they actually had, I believe, amplifiers built into that. So you could drive a set of stereo speakers with that all by itself as a disc player. And I don't know if that's, I'll have to look into the specs for what they're doing with the uh, UBRX200. But still, yeah. if you're putting together the ultimate home theater system and you are a disc fan, at least there are some high quality options that will hopefully make their way over to North America. Because <laughs> that's, uh, it's great when I can find a good disc player, but sometimes it's Europe only or... Right. Yeah, I don't know. Make it universal. And yeah, like you said, I have no problem with what system on a chip they're using. Chances are that MediaTek chip probably has everything the Oppo 203s and 5s were doing right. already. And it's even a few more generations advanced in terms of just uh, yeah. massaging what features are available or even cost or performance. One of my big challenges with Oppo stuff was simply that it looked exactly the same. <laughs> when I was watching a Blu-ray on my $75 Blu-ray player versus a Blu-ray on that significantly more expensive Oppo player, um, they offered a whole bunch of custom features and, and, of course, the analog audio output options, which is very different. We should explore that. It was one of the first Dolby Vision players as well through a software update. I believe when it first launched, it didn't actually have that built in, but it was eventually added to it down the road. In addition, I always loved how Oppo presented the ins and outs or the nitty gritty of whatever you were looking right. at in terms of detail uh, for that particular format or source or whatever it was. And it just made inspection and detection always kind of fun for playing around with your content. Looks like they added Dolby Vision, gosh, 2017? Probably. But it was cool yeah. just to, you had not only one yeah. of the best players to begin with, but yeah, they took care of it all the way to the end. Which is a beautiful thing. A beautiful, beautiful thing. And in fact, wait, wait one moment. I'm also, you know, kind of like, oh, we should really at some point talk about the UDP LX500 um, <laughs> Pioneer's yes. $1,100 player. I'd love to check that out. I got to say, they and they continue to support uh, the UDP 203, 205. The last firmware update for that was February 8th, 2019. Excellent. Which... Uh, Added the HDMI in bypass mode for Dolby Vision pass-through via HDMI in, along with general fixes and disk compatibility improvements. Be interesting to see if they ever offer another firmware update for that. Yeah, that was the crazy thing about the 205. It's that pass-through function where mm -hmm. it was almost like a mini AVR in a sense for at least two-channel yeah. output. But yeah, that was sweet. If you had either one of those, I'm just glad there are other options now. And I'm going to take a look at that UDP LX500 from Pioneer. It's very fancy. There's a couple interesting things it does. I hate to ignore Pioneer. <laughs> Our friend Ryan has an interesting problem. Uh, he's got an LG HU85LA 4K dual color three laser DLP smart projector. In an amazing, amazing installation with a 120-inch screen in his home, in a room that has a lot of windows, and things 
are unfortunate at that point. The windows are problematic. <laughs> Just a little bit. Oh, yeah. That projector, I absolutely adore. It's one of the first 4K HDR projectors that features dynamic tone mapping for HDR content so that you're not constantly fiddling with settings to get an ideal look to the projected picture, depending on how the content was mastered. It has some ability to tweak that based upon what the content is actually reading at. Also, there's a built-in over-the-air tuner built into that projector, which is like, what the hell? I doubt you're going to use this outdoors, but even if you were using it indoors and you wanted to just to connect a regular antenna to it and enjoy some over-the-air, it's good to go. It also has LG's WebOS platform with all the built-in apps and everything. And like you mentioned, that light engine with a red laser emitter, a blue laser emitter, and another blue laser emitter that's exciting, a chunk of phosphor to produce the greens. In effect, this eliminates the spinning phosphor wheel we've seen with all previous projectors that were using only a single blue laser. I could go on and on about this projector, but to say it was paired with the wrong screen is, I think, an understatement. It is a beautiful screen. It's a screen innovation, zero edge design with LED accents, 1.3 gain rating. This would be ideal for anybody's dedicated projection room in terms of having good quality light control, which this room does not. And it looks like a washed out mess when he tries to watch anything during the daytime. All of those windows are just dumping light in and that's not going to help. I think from the very beginning, what he should have gone with, and apparently that's what he had specced, but it wasn't installed, was our all-time favorite ambient light rejecting right. screens. These are engineered screen surfaces that reflect more light from a particular direction while rejecting the light coming in from other angles that you don't want that light, you know, influencing the picture quality. In the case of Ryan's projector, it is an ultra short throw design and I really feel that ambient light rejecting screens are a practical must have for these kinds of projectors just to get the most out of them and to make them really more like almost a TV rather than a projector in terms of its look and usage application. When you are shopping for ambient light rejecting screens, one spec I would suggest checking out and confirming is your short throw or ultra short throws throw ratio. You want to compare that to what the screen that you're considering is actually recommending as far as the range of that throw ratio. In the case of his projector, it's a 0.19. There are a couple of great options for that, including one from SI. They have a very good ultra short throw spec ambient light rejecting screen. And we also found one from Elite Screens as well that was specific for that particular throw ratio on that projector and getting the most out of it. It's a must for his setup. It's currently all but yeah. unusable during the day if you're not willing to put in something like blackout curtains. The tweet's funny. He's, he's, uh, Avengers is playing Promise, and in one picture you can't see. It's just a gray screen, and in the other picture <laughs> there's a little bit of an outline of Tony. Like if you had welding goggles on and we're watching a screen that's kind of what what uh, tony <laughs> tony stark looks like on that screen it's a little washed out just a little <laughs> it's a little yeah just a little as somebody who's been running projectors for goodness 12 years now has it been that long 13 years 14 years yeah you know light management it's more difficult with hdr most hdr projectors than it is i think with standard projector simply because you are often trying to increase blacks and performance at lower nit levels um not to bring nits into the conversation but it is you need a flamethrower to deal with large windows during the day and most 
projectors do not have the output. Yeah, like Rob pointed out, not having a screen that's optimized for a short throw projector is really problematic. It would be interesting to have sort of a, you know, if, if you could do an immediate comparison with the same sort of blue sky conditions outside of, of, a, of this particular screen and a more optimal screen on that. But you can always, you know, spend a lot more money on automated blinds. You know, <laughs> that would be the first thing. But if you do want to keep that room bright and you want to give that projector a fighting right. chance to dazzle your eyes, you have to go with something like ambient light rejection. Yeah. For anyone considering this, maybe you are in a similar situation as to someone like Ryan. Before you go spending the bank on anything, you can actually order samples of these screen materials to you right. literally lay on top of your current screen setup and see what the difference is to give you an idea of what it would be like. And it's relatively affordable to do that, at least through Elite Screens. They offered screen material samples for like $10. If you've mm -hmm. found the one you think is the one, go ahead and order that sample up and actually put it up on the wall to give you an idea of what it'll be like before you throw down, you know, a four-figure sum to get the exact screen that works best for that. <laughs> Ambient light rejection to the rescue. Hopefully he won't have an issue swapping out this otherwise excellent screen uh, for one yeah. that is. Otherwise, it's curtains. Curtains humor. <laughs> and I got to thinking, too, about money no object. How much would a three-chip DLP Cinema 4K projector be uh, with, like, the uh -oh. top features, RGB laser design, 95% uh, say BT2020 color, and a crazy amount of lumens? Well, if you want to uh, dive down the rabbit hole of that kind of fun, Christie Digital has on their projector list right now a couple of brand new models, and these are not normal projectors, I will say. They have one that starts at about 15,000 lumens or up to 15,000 lumens, and you can compare that to your regular run-of-the-mill projectors. That's part of their CP4415 series, uh, the last two digits being about the max lumen rating. These are true RGB laser projectors, three individual colored lasers with large, extra-large DLP Cinema 4K chips in them. If you wanted something even brighter, they had a new model, too, with about 30,000 lumens that also supported 3D viewing. 30,000 lumens. And when I said these are not normal projectors, they weigh in at a svelte 285 pounds or 130 kilograms. And we're talking right. a, a low six-figure price tag on something like that. And that doesn't count running the power. <laughs> True, you're going to need about at least a constant 1,500 to 2,000 watts on some of these designs, especially their larger models, uh, of course. But having that kind of light output for something like a 20 to a, well, a 40 foot screen even, <laughs> that would be pretty awesome. I would just like it to maybe have that daytime screen with the 30,000 lumen light cannon and uh, 4K resolution and exceptional 3D viewing. <laughs> Still, just uh, in case, Christie Digital, they have my money if there's a money, no object uh, project in the works. <laughs> it's a good plan. Yeah. Oh, man. So uh, GDS Labs, they updated their Atom DAC to the Atom DAC Plus, which answers the question, what happens when the company that provides the DAC chips for your DAC has a fire at the DAC plant? Uh, we talked about AKM's fire oh, earlier right. this year, which is 
been hugely problematic for a lot of people. So JDS Labs moved the design uh, of the Atom DAC, and and these are you know the Atom amp and the Atom DAC, which is now the Atom DAC Plus, or, or the Atom DAC Plus replaces the Atom DAC, are hundred dollar discrete DAC and headphone amps that are the entry level for JDS Labs lineup. They're literally pretty much entirely made, except for the you know, the subcomponents. Everything that can be made in the U.S. is made in the U.S. They for the higher end products JDS Labs makes. They've got I've had my hands on the CNC machines. They've got uh, over in Illinois on the other side of the river. They take testing seriously uh, in their design process, and they're very engineering and science oriented, which is kind of a beautiful thing. So the AK forty four ninety EQ, which was the DAC on the original version, uh, and the analog output stage quote have been replaced by an ES9018K2M and a carefully tuned six-group op-amp IV converter, which I never know if I slash V is IV, but I say it that way because I am what I am. So they had to put in a new DAC, right, because of the DAC fire and, and having product uh, to be available. And they added a Toslink input uh, alongside the USB input, which is nice if you're running it on a computer. It's kind of super convenient. They did some performance tweaks. They're, they're using an Audio Precision APX 555 analyzer now. So uh, John Sieber, the, the engineer there, basically found out it was incredibly easy or somewhat significantly easier to use because the noise floor is so much larger on the APX 555 than on his previous analyzer. So the performance is higher. You're not going to hear the difference. Uh, the Synad is like uh, 2 dB higher, which is great, but it's already far beyond human uh, audibility. And what's kind of crazy um he writes in the blog entry when they launched it the s9018's thd compensation registers expose an interesting option by leaving second harmonics optimized and boosting third harmonics that's distortion quote the DAC approximates a tube-like sound this is not something i encourage but it's an interesting experiment for those curious enough to try firmware version 1.8.3 the difference between a cyanide of 65 db and 110 plus db is much smaller than you think and these guys are super super objective measurement oriented in the design of their product um and have been for a very, very long time. But I love the fact that they're pointing out that, you know, one of the things that's happening on, on for example, Audio Science Review is people are like, oh, it's only got a sign out of 90 dB. That's ridiculous. Uh, we need better. And the reality is, is this stuff's really hard to hear once it gets past a certain point. So there's some really thoughtful features in there. It's an attractive product. It is. I like their design work. I also appreciate the fact that they seem very prompt at providing firmware updates for a variety of hardware out there. I'm looking at one labeled 1.8.4, dated like 10, 12 days ago, that adds yeah. PS4 and PS5 support in addition to the updates for all modern operating systems. I suddenly have an urge to connect this to my computer <laughs> or get one in. Pairing that with an Atom amp. Mm, 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 mm. I use one of their elements as my primary DAC and headphone amp, which is an all-in-one box. Uh, it's a somewhat spendier, but it has a big volume knob. Uh, and you could probably use it to hammer tent pegs because it's made out of CNC milled aluminum. That whole firmware update you talked about, 1.8.4, it locks the volume at 100% so you can run it with the PS4 or the PS5 without issues. Ah, okay. 1.8.3 is so you can experiment turning your <laughs> state-of-the-art, you know, DAC into something that sounds more like a tube-powered DAC. Uh, <laughs> See, that's kind of cool. 
they're a fun crew. $109, so it's like you know $9 more expensive or $10 more expensive than the original Adam DAC. Uh, you can get it with US, EU, UK, or AU plugs, so you can plug it in pretty much anywhere in the world, and uh, they're good people. They're really good on customer service. They're in the US. They help employ people in the US, and that's uh, always a positive thing, so it's good stuff. So Chris Heinonen, uh has been looking at the Hisense uh, U8G and the Samsung QN90A. Chris uh, works for the wire cutter and he's looking at HDR TVs and he took a bunch of pictures of two HDR TVs side by side, speaking of measurements and what they mean. And he was kind of amazed at how different 1700 nits of brightness can look, especially I have here in the show notes, uh, one TV has some baked in color issues. He tweeted out uh, twitter.com slash Chris Heinonen. Uh, I've been testing the Hisense UHG and the Samsung QN90A recently. And after seeing others do the same, I took some photos of them side by side for some examples. Both are using their most accurate preset and I didn't do a full calibration to keep them fair. But it was kind of wild to look at the two televisions, which theoretically have the same amount of sort of brightness or HDR performance this looks like a software problem. The Hisense has a standard backlight. The Samsung has mini LEDs. If you don't turn the backlight down, the Hisense uh, has a fairly gray version of black. Um, and yeah, the the EOTF for the HDR, Chris notes, and it's a whole series. It's a it's a tweet storm. The Hisense. Uh, quote, makes everything much brighter than it needs to be, and the HDR images look washed out by comparison. Uh, he said the SDR gamma was off, no matter how he measured it, but the HDR is off and it can't be fixed. That meant the Samsung had better color saturation, uh, and that made the image look brighter, or excuse me, more dynamic and colorful. It's kind of crazy. These are both full array local dimming TVs that he was comparing, and they both provide about the same level of light output. But there's clearly an issue with HDR uh, in terms of playback. It seems like Samsung clearly has the advantage in terms of being able to do frame by frame processing and almost provide a dynamic mode to something that's otherwise static metadata, whereas the U8G is having an issue somewhere with that because he goes on to mention that when viewing Dolby Vision content, which does have dynamic metadata, they look effectively the same at a much better value on the Hisense side. But uh, clearly there's a firmware that needs to be addressed and to make that HDR content either look better or to simply take a look at whatever values are being delivered to that TV and do it better, period. Uh, If they can't do something in terms of like a dynamic tone mapping the way other models do, then they need to have at least a set of tone mapped presets that are good for the variety of content out there, be it stuff that's authored to say like 300 nits or 700 nits or 1,000 or Mm 4,000 just to at least have a few presets if they can't do it on a frame by frame basis in terms of video analysis with the uh, chip built into it. Like a few other TVs do almost all the modern 4k HDR TVs. I look at nowadays, the premium ones, at least are the mid to upper premium. They all offer Mm -hmm. some form of dynamic tone mapping for HDR content to make it look more like Dolby vision content, right? It's a bummer that new tech, has a little ways to go before it's fully massaged out and looking as good as some of the top tier brands like Samsung, which I believe I just read some stat. I think Samsung sold like a third of all 4K TVs sold in the last quarter. Some crazy number. They are the gorilla in the room when it comes to doing that kind of stuff. 
Here's hoping to a soon-to-be-released firmware update for the Hisense U8G. It would be nice, especially if you already bought one. Mike's got a whole home audio detective thing going on. He emailed AcidAVXL.com to say that he just moved into a new, to me, albeit very recently built house, and he found some oddities. He's hoping we can help. Like he said, it's a recent build. It's one of the larger home builders in the United States. I assume it's the United States in his country. There's some semblance of home theater pre-wiring. The living area has standard speaker connections in the wall. There's a bunch of blank electrical plates, which he's assuming are the 5.1 channels. The real question, he says, is in the bedrooms. Doesn't appear to be a true whole house audio system because I've gone over every inch of the place and I can't find the low voltage panel anywhere where everything in the home runs to. But in every bedroom, right above the light switch, is a blank electrical plate and a pair of blanks in the ceiling. The light switch level plate has a single four conductor and two two conductor wires, and it seems like one of the, each of the two conductor wires goes to one of the ceiling boxes. Is there a wall input type source that would be used here, or do I just need to keep looking to see where all the four conductor lines run to? Is this setup typical for new builds? The only thing I'm thinking currently is that there's a smaller living area with a single pair of speaker plugs in the wall for left and right. And could those be meant to pump to a stereo set in most of the other rooms of the house? Because that just seems odd to send speaker level signal with that many splits rather than line level. Sorry if this is all rambling. Wanted to provide as much detail as possible. Regards, Mike. Uh, and first up, uh, we love all the details. Um, model numbers, information, what you've done, what you've tried to fix it. Those always help it when you send us a question. It makes it easier for us to not suggest things you've already done. One of the problems, as somebody who has been helping his parents uh, or was helping his parents restore houses when he was a kid and has lived in a couple of older houses as an adult, is uh, you never quite know what somebody's done to the house, when they've done it, if they ever had a clue when they were doing it. Good point. There was a running joke I had about our old house. Um, And uh, a lot of uh, really creative repairs and modifications were done. And my running joke was that, A, the guy who owned the place before the woman we bought it from used to read a lot of popular mechanics articles in the late 50s and 1960s, but he never actually finished any of them. And there was some electrical work that was not only not up to code, but spectacularly dangerous. They did some terrible, terrible things to various parts of the house. And and I got to help fix those. And one of the problems is, is like, I'm a big DIY guy, but sometimes people DIY things in a way that makes just, you're just, why, what were you thinking? Uh, (laughs) In this case, though, I would say that in the living room, if he really does have plates over where all the speakers are coming right. out of, that has to home run somewhere in that room. I bet it's unfinished. That's the other thing. If it was finished, yeah. I bet they cut holes and they never finished wiring it. It reeks of like a homeowner that didn't know what they were doing or never finished or that they never actually finished wiring it. Because if you have blank plates in the ceiling, that means they never ran speakers off that. True. But if the wires are there, I'm thinking all of that yeah. has to home run somewhere. It may be like coiled up in a wall, which would be right. not ideal. See, there's no way of knowing what whoever installed this was thinking. Ideally, all of the lines, even the ones going to the bedrooms, would all home run at the same place. Right. So you could run your, say, second zone or third zone off of the same AVR that's also dealing with the 5-1 right. in the living room. Right. How do you detect, without just popping holes in drywall everywhere... 
you would hope that there was some sort of logic. Well, there are to wire where... tracers, right? Oh, you that's can probably a good point. find X Tech locally, right? So you could you could hook one of these gadgets. You could buy one of these gadgets, and and one you got to be really careful, right? Make sure you're you're actually looking at, at low voltage wiring, right? Uh, before you connect <laughs> one of these, because you know 120 volts hurts. It can kill you. Uh, you can you know you can start fires. My first thought is like cover the house top to bottom. See if you can find where this stuff ends up. Uh, that's number one. Number two, you can use wire tracking kits where you basically clip a gadget to the wire and then you walk around with this device that either bleats out from a speaker or, or sometimes they have uh, earphone plugs. And, and you can use those to kind of slowly figure out where the hell this wire goes. You could take a look up in the ceiling as well or in the attic or in through yeah. the flooring system. If you can either narrow it down to, hey, was it done up high or down low? Right. And then maybe figure out what wall cavity it went into. Right. Unless it's unfinished, in which case all bets are off. Yeah. That's the thing. It's this grand unknown and no, apparently no obvious place everything home runs. That is usually the most obvious thing. It's like, oh, look at this right. wall plate here in the lower corner of this room where there are a dozen wires coming out of it. <laughs> some labeled, some not. But at least if they were all properly installed, even if they're unlabeled, right. that would be trivial to just simply figure out which wires, which going where with right. a, either a simple test or a, oh, like you mentioned. Yeah. There's a bit of unknown here. <laughs> yeah. The, and that's part of the challenging, right? Because especially if it was built to be part of a sort of a high end home, what you will find is if they were thinking that they were either going to install like a Crestron system or something like that, or if they expected the person buying the home to do that, it is actually not unusual in those environments to have some, like there's amplifiers that exist simply because people want to drive eight speakers off of a single line. So they put in eight ohm speakers and then they wire them up and, you know, the amp, the amp ends up driving like a two ohm or a one ohm load, which is like the equivalent. It's the diesel tractor trailer equivalent of a of an audio amplifier oh that just got me to think of at one home i used to live in there was a dedicated separate like intercom system with speakers so there was a whole different system for the living room compared to say what was going right. on in say the kitchen where this main unit was that would do not only radio or whatever you wanted to play over all the speakers in the rooms but there was right. also a button in each room where you could actually yell at people and <laughs> get the communication on so to speak here's the the bad news mike is is you're gonna play detective yeah you're gonna have to go through every square inch of the house you know you're gonna have to check these plates to see if there's anything behind them you're gonna have to check every corner of the house and the basement and the attic to see if they terminate anywhere uh if that doesn't work you're gonna end up having to to get a gadget to try to trace them through the walls to see if they end up anywhere or if they're hooked to anything if you want to have some real fun, you can go in and start pulling up on those wires. And, you know, you might find out there's like 10 feet of wire in that wall and it's not attached to anything. But unfortunately, without being able to talk to the contractor or the homeowner, you're just in full detective mode at this point. Totally. Because um, if those runs <laughs> exist and they're, they're in good shape, oh, it's so nice to have those wires in the walls. Right. Such a clean look. The boxes are no big deal. I mean, hell, that probably will make it even easier to find good spots to mount speakers. And hopefully the blanks in the ceilings are well positioned and... True. 
Because you could end up with a – well, it's funny, right? But you could end up – this this may have been sort of a – somebody was designing a party system maybe with a volume control above the light switch that would taper the audio going to the speakers and the ceiling all driven off an amp or, you know, the second – you know what I mean? It's, it, it's It's tough. Who knows? <laughs> These are our best guesses, Mike, and they are all over the map. I'm going to stay optimistic and <laughs> – just assume and hope that everything is wired somewhere and there's a nice good amount of wire left uh all coiled up nicely labeled properly and uh, each room labeled on it just need to from, find the magic from spot a nice in the label wall. printer <laughs> good luck sir good luck you uh, had a follow-up on the Epson versus Vava lawsuit that we talked about last week. Yeah, I may have been a little confusing, too, because we were talking about laser systems and comparing those to lamp-based systems and DLP projectors. And it all kind of got me thinking about this week's conversation just with Ryan and his projector setup. And the reason I even brought up that Christie Digital projector was that all of the DLP projectors that are affordable out there, all and most of them for that matter... The majority are single chip systems that only display color at any one given moment in time. And you would need a true three chip DLP system to have absolutely no color breakup or the rainbow artifacts that are associated, regardless if you're talking about lamp or laser based systems. And three chip DLP projectors are simply not affordable. Uh, They never really have been. Compare that to something like three LCD technology, which effectively does that no color breakup technology, but with a much more affordable LCD design. And that was just one quickie to bring up there. And I really truly hope that folks have a good, easy option in terms of determining realistic brightness output from a variety of different projector technologies out there, be it lamp or laser. And I think just to reiterate what Epson's trying to do is to level that playing field in terms of how these numbers are tested and reported. All good there. One other thing I just wanted to mention real quick, too, and we were talking about this earlier, is just with audio compression, and we were talking about Bluetooth LE last week, I ended up uh, spending some good time at the Bluetooth.com website. They have a, what might not be the most ideal test track to listen to, but I took this test, and I'll post a link to this in the show notes, I really was not hearing much of a difference if any, between any of the samples, formats, or bit rates. Now, I I really want to go get my hearing tested after this because we were just talking about how, or I was bemoaning how with these Bluetooth wireless headsets, be it earbuds or, you know, over-the-ear designs, there technically was no absolute lossless way to transport, say, a lossless audio track to the headphones in a lossless manner. I would go so far as to say that what is available nowadays is pretty damn good. And at least with this one song test they have on the Bluetooth.com website, I couldn't hear a damn thing. And now I really want to I need to do a better test that has different types of music, something I might be more inclined to uh, get my ears wrapped around a little bit better. And hopefully hopefully I can hear the differences. Either that or I was simply not using this website properly. And I I hope (laughs) it was simply playing the same tone or the same compression format, uh, no matter what I selected. I am marginally familiar with the piece of classical, not the particular recording, but the actual work, the the orchestral work. I just found that uh, test very difficult between the quote unquote lossless version versus the various compression rates. I was madly clicking between them from high to low and going, this all sounds the same to me. (laughs) 
I will, I will, I will, I will do homework and I will, I will comment on the, uh, the Bluetooth audio codec demonstration up on bluetooth.com. But I, I will say one of the things that people don't realize is, is in, to amplify what you said, is just how good Bluetooth streaming can be. Not even AppDex or LDAC, but just regular old Bluetooth streaming can be if you have a decent, uh, set of Bluetooth headphones and, 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 you know, the noisier the environment you're in, the less you're going to notice uh, any issues in the encoding. It gives me hope for Bluetooth LE audio, and it really is encouraging me to get my ears tested. I am comfortable yeah. saying that I have very good eyesight in terms of visual things and yeah. analyzing display systems and whatnot, but I really... uh. I'm not up there when it comes to any kind of golden ear, I'm going to say, at least at least based off of my limited testing. <laughs> LE Audio has been around. This is the LC3 codec, which is kind of like the, the next evolution, okay. uh, the low-complexity communications codec. But, uh, you know, the, the idea of a golden ear is, is mostly self-serving hockey puck. <laughs> to coin a phrase, to coin a new tag phrase uh, on AVXL. But uh, what there is, is is people who are trained listeners or people who, who in this stupid as this is going to sound when I say it out loud, people who actually know what things are supposed to sound like. Um, right. And that's a difference from being like, well, I really like a treble heavy sound or I really like a bass heavy sound. or um, But a lot of this comes down to is, is, you know, I spent a bunch of years standing alarmingly close to uh, a particular uh, base cabinet and set of symbols, and um, me too. And I'm and a lot of paying other people's. For it now. <laughs> well, on one hand, yeah, but on the other hand, I know what a symbol is supposed to sound like, and I know what a symbol. You know, back in the early Good days point. of of MP3s and unreliable MP3 encoders, my personal favorite experience was one particularly atrocious MP3 encoder that would turn the harmonies of the Beach Boys into this sort of univoice, like it killed the late you know they're they're, right. they're singing out their vocals they're creating a chord but this was sort of a smirching together of all the voices uh another one made all the symbols sound like bacon i mean symbols you know and bacon have you know vaguely similar qualities but symbols do not actually sound like frying bacon um you the know sizzle. all the encoding and encoders have gotten a lot better but I will let's revisit this next week. I'll spend some quality time when the family's asleep with my fancy headphones and see if Definitely. I can pick anything apart on these. If you've come up with a better, at least online demonstration that allows you to select between right. no encoding versus SBC versus LC3, as is on the Bluetooth.com website, I was expecting to hear some difference, at least between the lowest bitrate versus the no encoding sample. And I will try it again, but after clicking around for a bit, I finally just shrugged and go, okay, I am golden with any kind of Bluetooth audio, <laughs> apparently. I mean, one of the things that people point out, right, is is a lot of tests are done using um, like a single tone, like a one kilohertz tone. And it's easier to detect distortion on a pure tone than it is to detect distortion on music, right? Music hides things that might be more noticeable with a pure tone because gotcha. a lot's going on. And because, you know, for example, a lot of the music we listen to involves distortion as a primary component of the sound of significant instruments. There are some some interesting uh, sound tests over on uh, audiocheck.net. Cool. I'll see what else I can I'll put some links in there out. for that. Yeah. The, if you've never been to audiocheck.net, it's amazing and worth your time. I'll just say that. I had one other thing I wanted to follow up on too regarding our talk yeah. last week about inkjet printed displays and emissive quantum dot versus OLED. 
that display week announcement I mentioned about BOE and its 55-inch world's mm-hmm. first 4K printed emissive quantum dot display, they mentioned a spec of 500 nits that I forgot to highlight, and that's the light output. And I just wanted to remind folks that that's about half of what the best OLEDs are doing right now. And for something like a printable material that goes beyond OLED, and that's really what they're looking at, this emissive quantum dot materials to be, something that can generate better color saturation and higher brightness levels. Currently, it's the brightness that they're the most challenged by. They clearly have a stable chemistry for apparently printing a 90 plus percent BT2020 4K color TV. That does not exist in consumer space yet. But the brightness will literally have to triple before it will compete with some of the best designs out there. And given like in a year or two from now, OLEDs are going to get even better. Anyway, it's truly hard to complain about a prototype that a company is proud of. I am not complaining. I am glad to see this technology moving forward, especially on the inkjet printed side of things. But yeah, they've got to get the quantum dot, the emissive quantum dot, inkjet printable technology, brighter than it is currently before it really can compete with some of the best out there, at least in terms of absolute light output from an, uh, literally an emissive display technology, be it emissive quantum dots or OLEDs. It's coming. Hey, one of the things that I started to say before is uh, if you're doing audio testing, sighted audio tests make it almost impossible to have an unbiased reaction to sound. Uh, and it doesn't matter how sophisticated or fancy or trained your ears are, but I'll have to see if I can look up some of the tests. But I, I think it was Sean Olive who did a, a test early on at his tenure, continuing tenure at uh, at Harman Kardon, where they, they took a, a, some very big, massive, fancy speakers and some very cheap looking little speakers. And, uh, you know, the big, massive, fancy speakers got high scores and the little cheap looking speakers got low scores for their audio quality. And then they drew sort of a transparent curtain in front of them. And the scores actually evened out a lot. When they couldn't see the big, fancy speakers or the tiny, cheap speakers, they just noticed that they all sounded a lot alike. And that happens constantly in audio. What? We're visually biased creatures? No. (laughs) Don't be a hater. It's got the shiny, man. Don't be a hater. Shiny. Okay, word of the day before we go. Word of the day, word of the day, word of the day. I want to say word of the day one more time is resistance taper. So resistance taper is essentially the relationship between volume and knob position on a potentiometer. So some potentiometers are designed to very quickly ramp up the volume. Some of them very slowly ramp up the volume. And uh, I was thinking about this in terms of uh, somebody was posting on Twitter and this audio company basically says that, quote, losing clarity by using a potentiometer that potentiometers were a big problem. And this is my words, not them. And they had come up with this very complicated substitute for a potentiometer and that this is going to make super awesome audio. Your audio is going to be super clear because it wasn't being funneled through a potentiometer. Gosh, darn it. Um, which all reeks of marketing, right? There are headphone amps with analog pots that measure near 120 decibels. Uh, Synad. There's flawless $20,000 preamps from companies uh, whose names I cannot say because I can't afford to say them out loud uh, that use potentiometers. Can volume knobs introduce problems? Absolutely. 
and especially cheap ones or super complicated ones. Uh, and there's some interesting stuff that I'm not going to even try to, to dissect right now that talks about how uh, digital volume control is probably a better way to go than a volume knob because, you know, that kind of statement hurts my soul because I love volume knobs, which apparently we should use as the title of this episode of Dead <laughs> Titles because, uh, you know, I'm beginning and ending with volume knobs. What the setup that this company put together does offer is a really, really nice, a sweet custom resistance taper that very, very slowly increases the volume, which is good because it's like a four watt amplifier. And if they had anything resembling a typical audiophile, uh, or, and I mean audiophile, not in a mocking term, but an actual high end audio pot, you would basically twist the knob like three degrees and your eardrums would meet in the center of your skull and you would never hear again as the blood poured from your ears, right? Because four watts is an insane amount of power for a headphone amplifier for the vast majority of headphones yeah you want that to come on nice and easy yeah <laughs> no quick jumps my aeon twos are they soak up a lot of power while producing audio but i still don't use a whole lot of the volume knob on my headphone amplifier which is uh offers a quarter of the power of that four watt Another reason I loved my Shure earbuds or my in-ears so yeah. much was that it came with a separate attenuator that I could keep <laughs> relatively low just in case I accidentally bumped yeah. the volume up. Because that was one of the first things I was like, my initial impression of in-ear headphone designs was that this is almost dangerous in terms of how loud you can make it. Yeah. But at the same point, there is no other technology really that lets you turn the volume down to very normal or even low levels, yet still be able to hear very clearly, even in relatively noisy environments. Just something I always true, appreciated. True. It's one of the advantages of noise canceling headphones. Yeah. Oh, and you got your package. I did. <laughs> A quick follow up to the ongoing saga of you and I having package problems. If anyone cares, it turns out that our neighbor saw a lonely box sitting on their loading dock that had been there for weeks and weeks. And while being a bit weathered, the contents appeared perfect. So I got my hard drives. My beloved Seagate Skyhawk surveillance drives are in hand. And I was able to Yay. then cancel the claim with FedEx. And they were happy. I was happy. And life goes on. <laughs> End of story. I love the fact that the box just sat there. <laughs> on the edge of loading. The guy's like, you know, that had been sitting there for a few weeks. And I finally... Finally, just walked over and took a look at it, and I realized it had your address on it. And there you go. Sorry. <laughs> I'm like, I don't think it was your fault. Don't no worries. So weird. But oh my goodness, drives in hand. We can't help you find your lost packages, but we got answers for you. If you've got audio or video questions, as always, tweet at Robert Heron or at Patrick Dorton. Or if you're feeling kind of adventurous, tweet at AVXL. Uh, you can hashtag AskAVXL if you want to get that rolling. And, of course, we love it when you email us, ask at AVXL.com. And, again, thanks to all of our patrons at Patreon.com slash AVXL. Your monthly contributions make the show possible by, you know, making sure we don't have to pay for the server costs and stuff out of pocket. And we appreciate that. Yeah, we do. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, episode 141 of AVXL, the volume knob episode, <laughs> draws to a close. I'm Patrick Norton. I am Robert Heron. We'll catch you next week on AVXL.